This is the We Are Her podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the We Are Her podcast. Um, my name is Emily. I'm your host. We are in the home studio today recording our very first episode of the season. And um, yeah, I have a guest with us and I will just let them introduce themselves. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. It's kind of cool that I'm first in the season. Um, so, you know, I can screw this up completely and you'll have better ones later on. Everyone is special and unique. <laughs> My name is Michael Broussard. I run an organization called Ask a Sex Abuse Survivor. And I've been doing this activist advocate thing since 2014. And there are a lot of different things that we do, but I will wait to get into those as we're talking more naturally. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for the intro. Um, And I guess I'll just kind of, you know, start this episode the same way that I pretty much start all episodes, which is just sort of um, asking you to start sharing your story in in whatever way it makes the most sense to you on whatever timeline and however you want to. And I'll just kind of turn it over to you. Um, The way I would have shared my story up until last week (laughs) has immensely changed. And I'm going to start with an event that happened previous in the previous week. Um, I got a uh, a message from a sibling that said, our rapist is dead. That is an incredibly, I, I don't know how I would describe it. It, it. It's, it's, at first it was just sheer disbelief because this thing had continued on this planet with no right to be here. My, you know, no, not my apologies. I don't mean apologies. Um, And I had spent a lot of years and I think other survivors do this as well. Googling my abuser to see what was going on, to see if he was hurting anybody else, that sort of thing. And I will admit freely. I also Googled his name in the word obituary. Um, So, my reaction to that has been incredibly complex and deep. And it's made me roll back over everything that I have gone through. Um, When I was seven years old is when the abuse started. My abuser was my stepfather. I have evidence and testimony from people who were around when I was six before I was being abused. And the person they describe is a little kid that was so incredibly outgoing and happy and silly and funny. I love to sing and I love to dance and I loved to tell stupid jokes over and over again, like you do when you're a kid, you know, like Bazooka Joe jokes. And I would, 
that's the person that I was told as an adult that I had been up until the abuse started. And I became a child from being incredibly outgoing and fearless. I became a child who looked at the floor all the time, eyes down, never spoke above a whisper, if at all. I was scared of every adult I encountered. I was scared of everything in the world. Um, what blows my mind about that time period is that here I am, this happy-go-lucky kid. Suddenly, I stopped being that person. And I went silent, dead silent. And nobody noticed, which is just bizarre to me that nobody noticed. I don't understand how no one saw that, but they didn't see that. Um, and the abuse went on for several years. I had originally thought the abuse, I mean, let's be plain about this. He raped me. He raped me over and over and over again, several times a week. He made as many opportunities as he could to be alone with me so he could do what he wanted to do. And originally, up until a few years back, I thought that this has only happened between the ages of seven and eight. I started doing my Ask a Sex Abuse Survivor interactive show, which is how Ask a Sex Abuse Survivor began its life as a play with interactivity so we could have a conversation while I was telling my story. And I started doing that. And, you know, then it caught the attention of people in the family that I was doing that. And then my sister called me up and she said, you know, you're saying in your play that it was only a year that Harold abused you. She's like, that's not true. You told mom about Harold and what was going on. She kicked him out of the house. And that's what you think. It, that's where you think it ended. But it didn't end there. Mom let him come back over and over again over several years to take each one of us alone for child visits, for unsupervised child visits. Now, before I can say, well, mom didn't know, you know, before I told her. So how could she do anything about it? Then my mom knew. And then my mom handed me over to my abuser over and over again. That was a, a mind-blowing moment because I'd had nightmares. Because we all have nightmares, you know, survivors. We have nightmares. We have flashbacks. We have all this. I was having nightmares about an encounter with him that I thought was fictitious. Because I was like 10 or 11 in the dream. And he left when I was eight, so this couldn't have possibly happened. And the nightmare I was having was so vivid that it seemed like it was really and truly happening. And it confused me because, like, well, I'm 10 or 11 in this dream. How could I possibly 10 or 11? This must be just something my brain is doing. Well, when she told me, when my sister told me about the fact that he came back and abused us over and over again, all of a sudden that nightmare, my mind moved it into being a memory. Yeah, things started like clicking into place and yeah, mm -hmm. which is in. really common. Mm -hmm. And all these other things moved in, all the stuff yeah. that had happened over those several years afterwards between the ages of 7 and 11. So suddenly <clears throat> I've spent years processing trauma and now I have all this fresh trauma. And I'm, it's like I'm at the beginning with it because I am at the beginning with it because it's, yeah, sure, I did a lot of hard work. Sure, I got to the point where I could tell my story. Sure, I got on stage telling my story. But this, this was because it had never been dealt with as reality was right. a new challenge. And it threw me for a hell of a loop. And I 
you know, I every time something would happen in my life, I would work it into the show because the show is meant to be an evolving entity. It's meant to be, you know, my story of healing and abuse and all that stuff, but being reactive to reality to what's happened most recently. So all that stuff gets gets put in. This gets put in. And another part of the show is still in where I say that I don't have any recovered memories. Now, I'm on stage. We're at one of the breaks. We do break several points in the show to, to have the talk about things and see what people have questions they have or whatever. And we're at a break and somebody raises their hand and I'm like, well, you know, I, 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 pick, up, I pick them and they say, well, you said earlier that you didn't have any repressed memories. But then in this part of the show, you just told us about all these memories that were repressed. And I was like, yeah. You're like, damn it. <laughs> it was just, I'm staring. What? Whoop. I, so as somebody yeah. who's gone over this stuff a million times, yeah. I was still in certain places, incredibly personally unaware. I was not right. self-aware about that at all. Right. And like self-awareness is a practice. It happens over time. I think people just assume that you know everything about yourself and your life, you know, in a linear fashion or all at once in this magical like mind download or something. And it it happens in bits and pieces and chunks and it's nonlinear. It's often not compartmentalized. And I think especially when the abuse happens when you're really young, you know, your your brain is still developing. You don't have like things become blurred. And then having to sort through all of that as an adult can be really confusing, especially when it's coming in those bits and pieces, just like you were talking about with having the realization that like, oh, no, this actually had happened for years, but your mind probably didn't want to remember that it was in survival mode and that got tucked down somewhere way down deep. But it doesn't mean that it, it's inaccessible. It's just that you might not have access to it, you know, exactly when, where, how you want. It's going to pop up when it pops up. And your sister being like, no, mm-hmm. it didn't end when you were eight, started triggering that domino effect of things sort of bubbling up. It needed that pull tab. Yep. She yeah. That oh, that's a great went, way of putting it. Yeah. You, know, you pull it and everything comes out. Yep. It all comes out. And I have now adopted the belief that I don't know everything and that things will still come. And I feel like since that experience of having those memories all come tumbling out, that I'm better prepared for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Because as you said, this is not that, I mean, it's obviously, it's not linear. I think it's a big ball of string, like all wrapped up together with stuck to chewing gum. <laughs> it's yeah, just, yeah, really, yeah. what's going on? We don't know. And yeah, I, I've had people say to me because you know we we do this advocate thing and we try to we I try to be a hundred percent public with everything mm. I go through in reference to the abuse and in reference to my mental health challenges and things like that because I think there's great value to that and it can help people feel like they're not alone and so over time I have heard the question so many times well I was doing really really well and then this thing that I swear I dealt with 15 years ago is back. So clearly my healing has failed. Like no, your healing has not failed. It is. That's not what it is. Have you ever read the book Slaughterhouse Five? I have actually Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. What happens to the protagonist? He becomes unstuck in time. Now that's the way I feel my life is unstuck in time. At any given time, I can be experiencing any 
moment from my life. And sometimes it's just a memory, but sometimes it's, you know, 365. It's, 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 you know, full high quality audio and video. Um, and it's happening again. And I used to feel like, you know, I was failing because over and over again, these things kept coming back. And I've learned simply through conversations that I've had with survivors, both during the show and during the, the activist and advocacy work I do on social media, that I am like everybody else. We're all trying to get our hands around this and we need to give ourselves credit for everything. This is not, you don't knock yourself for not knowing something you didn't know. Right. And you give yourself credit for the things that you do know. And you, and the most important thing for myself was to give myself patience and compassion. And I want to get my fellow survivors to hear that and to feel that and to be as good to themselves as they are to another survivor who asks for their help. Yeah, that self-compassion piece, I often am like, well, if a friend came to you and said, you know, this happened to me, or I can't believe I am just realizing this for the first time, would you be like, yeah, you're dumb? (laughs) Probably (laughs) that would, you would be a really bad friend if you did that, Mm -hmm. but we're so quick to do that to ourselves. Um, And I think part of being able to process and integrate some of these experiences is to release ourselves of some of that shame and self-criticism. Otherwise it can get really toxic very quickly. Um, And I also wanted to go back to, you mentioned something about, I love that metaphor of being unstuck in time and like these ideas around memory and what, and, you know, sometimes I ask myself, well, what is a memory, right? We act like memories are this like magical mist that is somehow outside of our body that like just exists in there separate from us. But that's all, you know, that's all an experience happening in the very organic (laughs) the very organic being of our bodies and our brain and they're interconnected and you can't separate them out. And so, you know, a memory is, is, it is almost like being there again um, because that information is stored in, in the brain, in the body. It's not this like ethereal existential mist that's separate from us. And I think, I don't know, that's always been kind of a helpful reframe for me. I really like the way you put that. It's something that, Obviously, I think that many survivors go through. Um, and I like what you said about memory is not just this sort of detached thing. It's not a list of it's it's not a photo album. It's not the list of things you've right. done. You can't just access everything in it. And it's not just in your brain, like you said. And this goes back to flashbacks that people have, myself included, and trying to explain to people who've never had trauma what a flashback is. It's just like, oh, you're remembering something bad. Yeah, I remember the other day that, you know, I got fired from my job in 2020 and, you know, and it was really, it was really upsetting to me. I'm like, no, that's not it. Mm-hmm. It's something, it's something different. It varies for me and I think it varies for everybody, but there are many times where it's in every part of my body and I become less connected to the world around me yeah. than I am to this memory and this flashback and this thing that's happening in my body and that it took me a while to realize that I did a thing called dissociating yeah and dissociation is fascinating because now it's become like this dissociative identity disorder you know where Mm. they've just split and fractured and I know several people who have dissociative identity disorder the interesting thing to me is they refer to themselves as us Mm -hmm. which is fascinating um, but I mean, dissociation doesn't necessarily mean that. 
but it can lead to that if there are other factors. For me, it's my when I was a child, I was being hurt in such a horrific way, both physically, mentally, also emotionally in such a horrific way that my child brain could not handle this. Right. So my mind out of protection went away and went somewhere else. In my case, it went to the Hundred Acre Wood with Winnie the Pooh, only the Disney version, or to Bedknobs and Broomsticks, where they, you know, they would fly on their bed to distant lands. They I had a really strong imagination, and without realizing I was doing it, I was dissociating to stay sane and stay alive and survive the experience. Then I found out in therapy that I had been dissociating randomly for decades, meaning not just when there's pressure, but suddenly my brain will go somewhere else. And this became a challenge for my marriage uh, mm-hmm. with my wife, Christy, because she would be saying something. My mind would decide to dissociate and my answer would show I hadn't heard a word she said. And she's like, well, you're not listening to me. And she had a really good point there. It sure as hell seemed like I wasn't listening to her. Right. So it it kind of, it got to be a very tense thing between us because I didn't at that time know what it was or why it was happening and I couldn't control it. And I got into therapy again after being out for many, many years. And I got into therapy because my wife suggested it. I had given up on therapy. I was like, well, one day I should just wake up one day and be better. That's how therapy works, right? Oh, if only, if only it were that were true. Oh, yeah, if only, if only, right? And so she saw me really, if I made the tiniest mistake in life, I would tear myself apart. You're stupid, you're useless. And I didn't know I was echoing the words of the people who had bullied and hurt me. My, my In my mind, it was my voice. So my voice knows what's true. So I must be stupid and useless. She got me to go back to therapy. I was with a trauma-informed therapist for the first time. And I learned about dissociation. And I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly what I do. And we got to the point where she wanted to know about therapy. She not It isn't like she wanted me to tell her everything I said in it, but she's like, you know what? If you want to talk about this, we can talk about this. And so we got talking about the dissociation thing. And we actually came up to an, came to an agreement, which is it's a no penalty. If you're talking to me, I dissociate. Then I come back. I can say, I dissociated. Can you... It, Repeat that, please. Yeah. And that thing, to have that kind of connection with the person that you're spending like every day with, particularly at this point in time, um, that's incredible. And she wants to be involved in my healing. Um, A classic example, it was absolutely wonderful, of this therapist that I'd gotten to start seeing, this trauma-informed therapist. We'd done uh, several years of work. And... I said to my therapist, I said, you know what I want to do? I want to write a play about this. And she's like, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. And you know what else I want to do? I want to have my play be interactive so people can ask me any question they want about abuse, about what I went through, about anything. She's like, oh, my God, why are you ruining all the therapy? Uh, (laughs) We made so much progress. What are you doing? Not quite like that, but it was panic. I was like, no, don't. And I said, listen, okay. I'm a theater artist. This is the way I process mm-hmm. things. This is my way of dealing with, and I want to do something positive because that's what I do. Uh, that's what I try to do. 
And so essentially she and I, my therapist and I kind of kicked the show around in therapy (laughs) for months. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I went and did it and first performance, a lot of anxiety because the worry that my therapist had, and then I just had a fear about it itself in my head, way in the back of my head. Well, if I tell people about what happened to me, there's always people who want to cut you down because of it. Well, I'm giving them an, I'm giving them a weapon to cut me down with. I'm letting them speak up in the middle of this. And my therapist came to the first performance and my wife came to the first performance. Both of them hugged me afterwards. And then I found out that my therapist had intended to retire she was about to tell me at that appointment where I told her I was going to do this show that she was going to retire. And she decided not to retire until we got to the first performance. Wow. Oh, I, mean, I love God. hearing good there about good therapists. Isn't that fantastic? That's amazing. She did retire and then she passed me on to another therapist who is mm. just as good of a similar philosophy. Who, I mean, she was originally, I'm passing you to this person. Because I think they will be good for you. I am not recommending anybody else. You can get somebody else, but I think this person is good for you. And I was like, thank you for looking after me. Yeah. And I understand the proceed with caution. I mean, that's sort of in the work Mm -hmm. that Stevie and I do with We Are Her. Anytime, you know, people want to share... I, absolutely. There's considerations to to think about and some of the implications and potential consequences like, yeah, shit might come up again. But I also think we have to trust survivors and, and humans in general to to know how they they sh- should heal. And for you, it sounded like you had a really clear understanding around like, oh, this I am craving this. This will be cathartic to me. I think this will be helpful. And and yeah, I love the no penalty term. Like <laughs> you can also try things out and say, wow, that was not as helpful or it did not go <laughs> the way that I really wanted yes. it to and go back and don't do it anymore. But but you'll never, I think sometimes it's like, it's okay to test. It's okay to like try things out. It's okay to play with different philosophies or strategies and find what works for you. And um, I'm glad that you were supported in that process. I it- I, every day I, I, I remind myself of what a gift it has been and is continues to be both from a therapeutic standpoint and also from my marriage. Um, I spent a lot of years in relationships that didn't work out and I take full responsibility for some of the reasons they didn't work out. I was not communicating. I was emotionally unavailable. I was in my, my, I was, I was in, I was in my circular wall. You know, where I can't let anybody in because if I let them in, they're going to hurt me. And if they hurt me, I may not be able to survive at this time. So I can't let anybody in because they may hurt me. Right. And I had relationship after relationship, which I look back now and go, you know, I'm not saying I was all in the wrong when we broke up, but I'm saying (laughs) I shared at least 50 percent, maybe more in some cases. I mean, seriously, simply because I wasn't fully there. Um, I was in that place where this little boy needed to be protected from the world because the world was going to hurt him again if I don't protect him. And I don't think that's always a matter about right or wrong, good or bad. Like those are moral issues. And I really appreciate your language around accountability where you're like, look, I, you know, I want to be honest about like the, you know, the dynamics and, and, you know, what part I had to play in them, but to release yourself of some of that shame. And it's not about good or bad, right or wrong. It's about, you know, you, you had developed certain coping mechanisms and survival techniques as a child that kept you safe and alive and sane. And then at a certain point, they're not helpful anymore. And it's like, 
you know, this is, I don't, I don't, you know, this is not serving me and finding those workarounds and getting the help and doing, you know, whatever it is to kind of work with those. But yeah, I, I try to really work with people around like releasing that sort of shame around well, and, and being able to have some accountability as well. So I really, yeah, I really appreciate your language there. I think it's, um, for me, it's just come with years on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not saying this people I know who are in their twenties, who are, they, they got it down a lot better than I do, but, um, I can look back and n- I'm no longer in conflict with the surround, with the world around me. So, I can look back and say, okay, that was a bad thing. I shouldn't have done that. Or I shouldn't have said that. But yeah, there, it isn't a question of judging yourself and saying you're a terrible person. It's right. just, like you said, sharing responsibility. Um, I had an interesting conversation with my therapist a while back because when we first got together, I was just like downloading all this stuff on the new therapist. Poor woman. No, they're getting paid. That's what their job is. <laughs> no. Oh, I know, but I just liked her so much. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think it was a heavy download. I think it was like, boom. Um, I had talked about situations, not just romantic relationships, but friendships and artistic Mm -hmm. partnerships, collaborations, all these things. And I had been talking about it from the point of view of saying, God, if I wasn't such an ass, that would have worked out. And I said basically variations on this several times. And at one point she says, stop, hold on. Some of the stories you told me, yeah, I can hear you bear responsibility. But some of these people were just assholes. Yeah. And to have somebody say that to me, not say that I had to take it all upon myself and it was all my fault was gigantic to find that there's a balance between responsibility and the responsibility of the world, you know, to my responsibility to actually take care of myself and that sometimes people didn't have my best interest at heart and some Coming out of the, I know I'm jumping to a different million different places, but this is no, where things it. go sometimes. Sure Coming is. out of the, the 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 childhood abuse, I was a very bitter teenager and a very bitter young adult, and probably into my thirties, very bitter um, about everything. And I think at that point, I was dialed to this to the the uh, the setting of everybody sucks. And all you can do is try to protect yourself because everybody sucks and you can't trust anybody ever for any reason whatsoever. Mm. And then in therapy, I came up with this concept of over dialing or under dialing. And that was like decades ago. And it's when you work on something to be better, but then you over dial to the point that now you're letting everybody walk over you because you're trying to be nice and kind and understanding of everybody. And you're, you're there for everybody all the time, 24 seven to the detriment of your own self, because you said, Oh, I, you know, compassion is a good thing. And maybe I can trust the world. And you go the other way and you get over dialed in that direction. Then you get, when you try to say, Oh my God, uh, this, I can't do this anymore. There's nothing left inside of me. You could over dial the other way and shut yourself up again and shut yourself down again. And there's so many different kinds of overdialing, you know, and I'm to get that dial in the middle has been my constant effort to get that to be a reasonable, nice, caring person who looks after themselves and doesn't let themselves be manipulated or abused, but also shows people who have been manipulated or abused compassion and gives them support, but doesn't give everyone away everything I've got. Because if I do that, 
then how do I tomorrow do survivor stories? How do I tomorrow do the play? How do I tomorrow have a conversation with somebody who just hasn't got anyone to talk to? Um, You've probably encountered this stuff as much as I do, where there's people who are, you know, they're still at the stage that I was when I was a bitter teenager and 20 something. And they're so closed in and they have nobody to talk to. Mm-hmm. And to give that person an outlet saying, you can talk to me. Um, that's, I think, something that I would long for when I was in that state. But then to say, I you love can- your dial. I, by the way, I just oh, have to you. say you're, you're blowing my mind. I think like we talk about boundaries and that sounds very like it can be very sort of amorph like what does that mean um and i think like i'm a very visual tangible thinker and so when there's something to kind of like like visually or mentally an image or um yeah something you can kind of play out in your mind something to latch onto like a dial it's like oh well that's a great way of framing boundaries you know like dialing up or dialing down and trying to find the balance right. in the middle that's so great it, it and i have found a way for the most part i still have to work at it we all have to work at yeah. it yeah yeah. But to go, okay, this person needs me right now and I'm going to be there for this person, but I'm also going to set a predetermined limit. Mm-hmm. I cannot talk to you every day because there's 14,000 people who follow what I do. And it's right. not that you're not important. You are important. You're as important as my pain was important. Your pain is important. So I will be there for you. But I found it hard when I became the super nice guy all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that doesn't mean anything. That's not really what I mean, but yeah. that what happened was I just got buried and I got buried and I got buried. And so by the same token though, I don't want to be the person who's not there because I have things, you know, every conversation you have with another survivor, they have things to teach you and you have things to teach them. And it doesn't happen for me in the context of teaching because I don't believe, I don't look at it like this is the way things should be. And because I healed this way, you should heal this way. There's a billion a billion different ways to heal. So I look at it as I learned something from you. You learned something from me. You may need some things that I don't need, vice versa. And every time I talk with somebody, every time we have a conversation in one of the groups or, or our meetups or whatever, I come away going, whoa. So I'm getting as much from it as I'm giving. And it's hard for advocates sometimes to stop and say, listen, this is as much as I can do. And now I'm on vacation for a week. Right. And not to feel bad about that. And I will admit, I haven't conquered that one completely yet because yeah. I'm a, I am believe I'm a compassionate person. So in about a week, we'll be on a staycation and I'll be there going, I'm having a great time. I wonder how Anne's doing. Yeah. You know, but my brain goes, okay, compartmentalize. Yeah. You'll be back. You're doing good work. And so many other people are doing good work. And you're not, it would be awfully arrogant to me to go, well, if they don't have me, they don't have anybody. I'm like, they have, we are her and they have, and, and I have all those things to rely on as well, you know? Right. So I, I can afford really to be appreci- me. Yeah. Yeah. And I really appreciate, um, I think kind of what you're speaking to is this idea of like mutual aid as well. And that there are, 
in the billions of ways that there are to heal, including therapy, there are also models like mutual aid where survivors are connecting directly to each other and supporting each other directly. And I think that, you know, and as a budding therapist myself, I do, I am critical of my own field in the sense that there are these ideas that like only therapy is the way and therapy is the only thing that can heal people. And we are the gatekeepers to healing. And, um, and don't get me wrong, I believe in therapy. And I think if you can get connected to the right therapist, it can be freaking life changing. But so can getting connected to these mutual aid networks like We Are Her and Ask a Survivor, where you just like being able to talk to somebody that just gets it. Um, and that doesn't mean that your therapist won't just get it. Like chances are they've got their own stories too, but that's not their role in that moment. And just being able to have that exchange of support and like you were saying, that learning from each other where it's not, it's non-hierarchical. It's not like I am the one who knows things because <laughs> I am, I am farther along in my healing journey. And let me tell you, you know, it's just like this very organic connection. And if there's anything that I've learned about therapy and, or just like healing from trauma in general, it's, it's all about that relationship and it's all about that connection with others. And that can look and take many different forms. I, I agree with you 100%. Um, you know, talking about therapy, uh, it's a, it's a good, it's a good central point when you're trying to talk about the fact that, as you said, no, not everybody heals the same way. Right. I'm getting a great benefit out of therapy, but not everyone will get a great benefit out of therapy. Not everyone. I do all these videos that are on the ask a sex abuse survivor page on, uh, on Facebook. And they're like just a day I have a thought. Or, or I'm going through something and I'll do like a two or three minute video or whatever. And most of those, I end with the phrase, your mileage may vary. Mm. Because honestly, your mileage may vary. I'm telling you what worked for me. I'm not promising it'll work for you. And it's all about, like you said, it's all about getting all this input from different places and learning what works for each of us. There are people who their faith is such a powerful thing and it keeps them going and it has helped them to survive the trauma. I am not one of those people in a, well, I may be in an odd way in another, <laughs> my faith is another thing. Okay. My, my spirituality is a, is a mixed thing, but mm. it came up actually on the ask a sex abuse survivor, uh, our group. We have, a, we have a private group online and somebody who had been abused within the church um, someone commented on their post without remembering that person had been abused within the church mm. and they offered them prayers. And the person who had been offered prayers came to me and said, I don't know how to say that prayers don't work for me. And in fact, they're a trigger. The word prayers is a trigger. How can I say that without offending this person? Everybody was really cool about it. But what we came up with was you say, can I offer prayers or may I offer prayers? Ask and if they say, sense. okay, then you do. When someone, I, I was raised, I'm a recovering Catholic is what I am, <laughs> which you hear preach, that phrase preach, a lot. I'm a recovering too. Catholic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and well, I'm not a Catholic per se or Jewish per se or whatever. If somebody believes in prayer, that is, and they think that is the most powerful thing they can offer you. If they're going to offer me prayers, I say, thank you. By the same token, 
somebody who's been abused within the church, that also needs to be considered. So again, your mileage may vary. It's okay with me. You can offer me prayers. That's fantastic because that's the big thing to you. That's the thing that matters. You're offering me your heart when you offer me prayers. I get that. Um, By the same token, you know, I don't offer people prayers because it would be, (laughs) it would be disingenuous of me. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think um, the context matters, like the who, what, when, where, why matters. And that, that all goes back to like knowing your own boundaries, which there's that tricky self-awareness thing. Sometimes you don't know what's a trigger or what works for you or doesn't work for you until you try. But I think in the moments like you were describing where someone realizes like, oop, that's not good. That's not helpful for me or that hurts or that's triggering. Um, relearning how to like use your voice is so, that that in and of itself is like a cathartic healing moment when you can practice saying, thank you so much for your compassion, but this doesn't work for me. And I, you know, and, um, and I, in the future, maybe consider asking someone instead of telling them, or, you know, like those are like you were saying, those moments where you sort of like learn organically. And every time you like practice using your voice in those settings, I think it's like a little bit more empowering where you're like, oh, I'm not going to just get shut down or I do have a right to use my voice and I can do that in a safe way um, that respects like, you know, the, the, um, the individual and their boundaries and me and my boundaries, but it all takes practice and it can be really hard to relearn how to do that safely and in a healthy way, especially as abuse survivors. I agree hundred percent. It can be very difficult. Um, certainly I have had problems in my life asserting myself, Mm-hmm. When I feel uncomfortable or I'm hurt or something is just not sitting right with me. And we talk about that dial again. I get, let's call it massively over assertive <laughs> for a while. <laughs> I got the fuck you in the world. The rest of you horrible people screw you all. I hate you. That's not a kind of assertive that's very productive. It's good for writing punk lyrics. Yeah. It's very good for writing punk lyrics. <laughs> You know, the being in bands for a few years, that was really good for me. Yeah, get some of that rage out in a healthy way. Just freaking punk it out. Well, exactly. And now what I write, um, I started just before the pandemic hit, I started a project with a a, a friend of mine. Uh, this, is a, this is the person who is also my tech who goes on the road with me who I introduced to Dr. Who. This is a guy named Sticks Latte, which is one of the coolest names ever, Sticks Latte. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's even cooler when you realize his real name is Martin Coffey. Oh, I see what he did there. That's brilliant. That's there. magnificent. That is really good. Yeah. But um, what was it? Oh, now I've lost context. What was I saying? <laughs> I was yeah. talking about overdialing and the anger. Oh, and the, yeah. And the, oh, the new, the, the new music yeah. Pro- pro- yeah. project. So we, he's a percussionist okay. and I write words and I've written a lot of songs and a lot of bands and stuff like that. But we were coming up to doing a particular show, which was, it was called 60 Minutes of Swearing. It was my opportunity to get up on stage and complain about everything that I hadn't complained about recently. And you know when you do a show and you're up there on stage, I don't know if you've ever been on stage, uh, and, and, and nothing you're doing is landing at all, but you know you have to be there for 45 minutes because you're only 15 minutes in? Damn, yeah. And I was just thinking, but I'm like, I'm a professional. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this whole thing. Well, one of the things that came up while we were prepping for the show was I have these couple of little poem things and you play drums. You maybe do like a, like a kind of coffee house beatnik kind of thing with a couple of these during the show. Those were the, there were three things that worked. Those two things 
people loved them. And a thing called the suck jar was very popular. It's a, you know those big jars that like animal crackers come in, the giant yep. size. So we had. I'm gesturing like somebody later on is going to be able to see what I, what I said in the podcast. Anyway, I'm gesturing in the shape of a large jar. Um, he is. I can see him. <laughs> you can see him. Good. Cool. Yeah. Um. So the idea was, and we labeled it the suck jar. We put it on the on the table as you came in to you know to uh, to uh, as you came into the show. I don't know what I'm talking about. And. <laughs> I announced to everybody with little slips of paper, write something on a slip of paper that you think sucks and put it in the jar. We're going to use them later. Took the suck jar out intermittently during the show and would read up things like people who don't put their shopping carts back. And like the audience, would, the audience response was, which was to say, fuck that. So I'd say <laughs> people who don't put their shopping carts back and the audience would go, fuck that. And I'm like, you don't sound like you mean it. Fuck that. Louder and louder. And that was so successful. So what I took from that was after I was done being devastated from that show, <laughs> it took a couple of days. Oh, I went, God. wait a minute, those two little song things worked and this suck jar thing worked. People love that thing. So what we should do is we do more of those little song things with percussion and bring back the suck jar. And we were actually just about, just before the pandemic started, we were just about to take that on stage and the pandemic started and there was no more right. stage. And now what we're concentrating on is collaboration via computer right. and, you know, recording all the stuff to, to post and all that. And that project has allowed me to write things. I I never stop writing lyrics. I never stop writing poetry. I never stop writing. It's just like, if I have an outlet, fine. If I don't have an outlet, I can't stop myself from writing. Right. So I had all this stuff built up over years and my kind of playful, way of expressing myself in song began to be very highly developed. <laughs> so we have a song about global warming that I managed to work in the word hypercritical, hypercritical and uh, Heine. Yeah. It's marriage. your own Heine. You'll save, you'll save. It's your own Heine. You'll save. It's a waltz. And uh, so all this stuff is like, I got to do something with it. So we're now, I'm getting out those sort of feelings about things, mm. but it's not the anger anymore. It's become more balanced. It's more like, isn't this absurd? Mm. And there are things that still, I mean, I, I admit there are things that still anger me in life. And I don't think it's necessarily me being, it's not that I've been traumatized. It's that they're honestly things that are outrageous, yeah. you know, and that's, that's fair. You know, that's fair. But I, you're kind of like speaking to the normal ebb and flow of, of evolving and devolving and growing and shrinking and being pulled and stretched. And I don't know. I mean, as I'm coming into my mid thirties, there's like this narrative that like, you know, you hit a certain age and you stay the same way forever. And I think that's just false. And especially when you're dealing with the complexities of being a trauma survivor, like there's just going to be a lot of ups and a lot of downs. It's, it's a, that ebb and flow and kind of, inventing and reinventing yourself and finding out who you are and your boundaries can change and your emotions will go maybe from rage to humor to, you know, and like um, being able to kind of move naturally through your own process without that like shame or judgment or self-criticism can be what well, it's, it's challenging. And again, a practice. And I think that's sort of, 
that's one of those things that I think most people just work on for forever. It doesn't, you don't just arrive, but I mean, it's not, I just, yeah, I just think like the way that you're able to kind of have that self-awareness and really talk about what has been healing and helpful for you and to talk about the many iterations of yourself without being like, yeah, and I, you know, I suck and, or I shouldn't <laughs> have, or, you know, it's just like, here it is, here's my process and it is what it is. Yeah. Remember those days when I was stupid and used to fall over things at shows because I was trying to be cool and I would always hurt myself? God, I was stupid. I'm like, no, you know what? The kids thought it was cool when I bled. So (laughs) (laughs) throw a little blood in the show. I want to tell you one quick story because it kind of epitomizes my years in fronting punk bands. So I had been in this band called Trailer Trash for a number of years. I love the name. Somebody was like, well, that, that says we come from lower class. I'm like, well, I come from lower class. That was on welfare. That's why I named it freaking trailer trash. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so we were in this band and we we were rehearsing. We had sort of discovered each other and had a wonderful time. We were very excited about the things we were writing and ready to go out and play. And we'd done a few shows and things weren't going that great. And we had a show. We had two shows in a weekend, one on a Friday and one on a Saturday. Do you know what emo is? Oh my God. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. yeah. I was definitely, I went through an emo phase, folks show. It's yeah, totally understandable. I mean, yeah. I don't think I went through emo, but I went through other kinds because I was, I'm a Smiths fan. And oh, that's, okay. Yeah. That's very yeah, emo, that's isn't like, it? Yeah. That's it's like not, the it's father. It's not emo like they say, it's not like the genre, no. but it's the no, no, idea. No, 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 no. Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's For that sure. The grandfather of, of emo. Yes. The grandfather of emo. And then of course there's Nine Inch Nails. Oh God. Yeah. Oh, I love Nine Inch Nails. But anyway. So we go, we're doing two shows. One's on a Friday, it's about an hour away. And then one's on a Saturday, it's about two and a half hours away. And we go to the one on Friday and it's a, it's what you would consider an emo show with emo kids. And they were having a great time until we came on. Oh. And suddenly they all backed away and pressed themselves against the wall in the, in the American Legion. <laughs> Cause I ended up in the middle of just like screaming into my microphone with my silly lyrics. And the guys in the band afterwards on the way home were just like, I'm done. I quit. I don't want to do any more. I said, well, but we've only done like six shows. Seriously, give it time. The next day we went to a pizzeria in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. And <laughs> these kids had patterned themselves after every punk movie from the seventies and early eighties. Yes. They also just like one, one of the uh, penalty spheres directed. I'm trying to remember the name of it. But anyway, just like that movie, they had all, come together to live in a punk house together in this rundown house together to escape their parents and be free. And they fell absolutely in love with us. Aww. And they were like, they, they thought everything we did was amazing. They made, I used to wear jackets where I would paint them all over with like weird phrases and stuff. They found a jacket, painted it and put East Strasburg kids on it and gave it to me at a show. Wow. So you we're found doing your this, people. My people. Exactly. There are people with like, you know what Liberty spikes are? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Big Liberty spikes and the whole deal. It was so because I was like, oh, this is what I always wanted to be when I was younger, but I was too afraid to be. Um, mm. So we're doing a show. Right. And we're having a great time. And our audience is loud and they're crazy. Everybody's jumping around and they're singing along because I know all the words. It's fantastic. We get to the last song. I jump up in the air to land on top of the kids. Oh, At that God. moment, my drummer smashes his drum set and kicks his bass drum out right underneath my feet as I go up. The kids saw the bass drum coming and they all moved away. They all spread out. I came down. I slammed my forehead onto one of the nuts on the bass drum. And you know what? It it was a schizoid split. Seriously. Yeah. And 
And people were like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm holding a paper towel in my head with like blood and everything going, oh, fine. I'm good. No. And the kid who was filming the show with his video camera followed me into the bathroom to film me cleaning myself up. So punk like, rock! This is what I'm saying. So that is a good example of the kind of stuff I was doing back then because I was letting out all this anger and angst and frustration that had existed when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, but mm. that I was too shy and too closed in to do. So now I'm in my 30s and I'm doing this, you know? Yeah. And it's you talk about the change in the way you look at things in your own development or whatever that I don't look on that with any shame. I look at that with, that was fun. I'm not going to do it anymore because I'm too old now and I'll really hurt myself. Not that that <laughs> wasn't really hurting myself, but it's, it's something I'm good with that. I'm okay with that. The person I was then, you know, I, I don't have a problem with that person. I don't look at that person and say, well, what was wrong with me? You know, I, I needed to do that at that time. And I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, the person I am now doesn't need to do that. Mm. But the person I am now needs to express themselves. So it's going to be in another way. Mm. And as you had talked about earlier, looking down your sort of timeline of your life, for me, it's been a great gift to give myself patience with myself and say, you only know, you only knew these things when they, when you did that. And this goes also to the mistakes I feel I've made in friendships and relationships and things of that nature. Um, I take responsibility, as you said earlier. There are things that I did wrong. Um, and I also say, well, at least I'm, I know better now, mm -hmm. you know, and I can make a better world for myself. I really think that people, the world they make for themselves a lot is, the way they interact, where they choose to interact with the world. Now, I'm not the, co the, the, the toxic positivity person, however. Yeah. I'm glad you bring that up. Seriously. I mean, that, I, 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 that's not what I mean at all. Yeah. Because that toxic positivity thing is so, well, it's toxic. Let's just yeah. say that. You know, what is the, the, the meme that goes around? Um, the kind of day you have is, is down to your attitude. And I'm like, no, it's not down to your attitude or some sanctimonious comment on the internet, which is the second meme that came along right. after it. It's, it's like people talking about, for example, medication. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of us take medication for one thing or another, and some of us don't take medication. When people say, well, you know, you don't need medication, you just need sunlight. Some people need medication. I need medication. And I'm okay with that. And if somebody says they don't like medication and they don't want it and they don't need it, I'm okay with that. We talked right. earlier about knowing what you want and what you need as survivors. We learn over time what it is that makes us heal. It helps us to heal, you know? Absolutely. And I honestly, I think this is actually kind of the perfect moment really fast to like, well, maybe not really fast, but <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're sort of, I've kind of been on this journey with you through your life and, and you figuring out what's helpful, what's not helpful, sort of exploring like who you needed to be during different periods that helped you move forward and progress and evolve in your healing. And I kind of want to zoom all the way back, all the way back okay. to the very beginning <clears throat> of the episode when you talked about sort of this brand new space that you're entering into when figuring out that your abuser has passed away. And I'm just curious to know like what what does it look like for you right now to take care of yourself and kind of where are you at with things? 
I think some of what I'm going through is related specifically to this, but also is something I've encountered in the past, which is as somebody with bipolar disorder, um, mixed, (laughs) um, people sometimes look at bipolar disorder as sometimes you're happy, sometimes you're sad. And it is not that at all. The ups cannot, are not necessarily good. Sometimes they are fear, anxiety. Um, my response, my immediate response to finding out that my abuser was dead was joy. Yes. And yeah, you're not supposed to take joy at somebody dying. But you know what? He hurt a lot of people. And I don't know about you, but the presence of my abuser, even though I haven't seen him in decades, I felt that very intensely every single day of my life. And I've said to people that there isn't a day that goes by that he isn't next to me at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how deep the trauma is. So suddenly I hear he's gone. He's disappeared. He's he'll never be back. Well, that was elation. That was elation. I had years ago talked to a lawyer about um, pursuing my case. And the lawyer I spoke to said, the problem is that you cannot pursue a criminal case because the statute of limitations, oh boy, has run out. Worst idea ever for crimes, uh, for sexual crimes was the statute of limitations of any, you know, no matter what it is anywhere. Um, so I can't, well, my, my goal in order in, in taking him to court was to stop him, mm-hmm. was to put him in jail, was to stop him from hurting other people. I could sue him in civil court, but he has no money and I'm not stopping him. My goal was to stop him. Right. So I couldn't stop him. Well, he's stopped now. He is stopped. He's forever, ever, ever stopped. He will never hurt another person again. I found out about a lot of people after me who were also hurt by him. I protected one of my own siblings from being raped by him when I was little. Um, But he can never do that again. And that was elation, Mm -hmm. you know? But then there's all the stuff that comes along with, we're not supposed to feel good about somebody who dies. You know, death death should not be a, a celebration. So then the guilt feelings come up and I'm still balancing those back and forth. But when I first posted about this event, that this had happened and I said, I feel great. I feel happy. And I guess I should feel bad about that. Tons of my fellow survivors said, no, you shouldn't. My abuser's dead. I'm glad about it. Or if my abuser was dead, I'd be happy. If somebody creates a situation where their death, you know, that their death is something people want to celebrate. It's not the victim's fault. Right. It's the predator's fault. Right. You know, so there's all that I'm dealing with. Um, and you're allowed to feel whatever it is that you need to feel in your own process, in your own way, in your own time. And that that's, bit, you know, death comes with a lot of closure. Um, and there sounds like there's a lot of reasons to celebrate uh, closure and some real tangible closure and some some new opportunity to kind of like heal and move forward and keep growing. And all of the reasons that you were talking about with being so glad this person can't harm anybody. I mean, that's your own experience. And um, we can't always help how we feel, you know, it's not like you're, 
yeah, out there like making a parade about it and rubbing it in that person's family's face or, you know, but that's your personal experience. And I think you get to have that. And I really challenge folks who want to be judgmental of other people's own emotional experiences. It's not there. They don't have to be joyful. (laughs) No, I mean, (laughs) some people have very complicated. I mean, we all have very complicated relationships with the people who abused us. Let's face that. Right. Um, But different kinds of complexity. Um, I never dealt with, for example, the confusion of believing that my abuser loved me, Mm. was a loving parent or a loving caregiver in any way. A lot of people have dealt with that. And to extricate that from their feelings of betrayal and their feelings of disregard from this person who said they love them, that's a whole nother raft of stuff where I get that they don't suddenly dance in the streets when their abuser died because- They talk about Michael Jackson. Okay. Um, This is a, this is a really good example of this. Um, A while back, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the the leaving Neverland uh, special came out and before they ran it on HBO, they invited a bunch of us from the community, uh, male survivors to bring our, our support people with us and come and watch this on an afternoon. And after that was going to be a special called after Neverland that we were part of in the audience and it was uh, Oprah interviewing um, uh, James Safechuck and Wade Robeson, mm. the two survivors that the, the, the uh, production was about. And one of the things that they talked about was Michael makes you believe that he loves you and you love him. You can't help but love him. And they're like, you know, people say, why didn't you say something when you were 12, 15, 18, 24? And the answer kept coming back. I wanted to protect Michael because we were in love. I mean, it went so far as one of them, uh, they did a mock wedding ceremony with Michael Jackson. And it was, it's, it's so complicated because there are people out there saying, well, these people clearly weren't abused because it took them so long to say anything. And that's just not the way this trauma works. That is not the way this trauma works. And Feeling supportive to your abuser, which I don't have, but with other people have, is totally understandable because grooming is a heck of a mind screw, pardon my language. It really is. It's more than just the way they physically abuse you. It's the way they mess with your head. And my head got messed with to the point that I didn't feel like he was in love with me, but I felt like my pain didn't matter. Mm. I was not, I did not have the right to be safe. And I did not have the right to complain. I mean, he all the time, just my stepfather would say to me, well, why do you whine and cry so much? Why do you whine and cry so much? This doesn't hurt. doesn't hurt. And I'm like, yes, it does. I'm eight, I'm nine years old. And you're, it does. So I grew up thinking, I had, first I thought my feelings didn't matter. Then I got really defiant about it. And I thought the only thing that mattered was my feelings. Mm. And now we get some peace in between. I'm still unpacking the thing about my stepfather being dead. Yeah. I will say since that happened, I have not had one of those horrible dark dreams that I wake up from in the middle of the night where his hands are still on me. Mm-hmm. That just got me right now. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. But I haven't had those dreams. And that is amazing. Some other people told me that that's what happened to them. 
And I hope that I hope we stay there. It's not that I don't have bad dreams. It's not that I still don't have flashbacks about the experience, but those specific dreams I haven't had the dream you wake up from. And although you're awake and you're in reality, you can't grab onto reality. You're still terrified and you're still afraid and you're still in danger. I haven't had any of those since he died. Well, I think it's really hard to have emotional safety when you don't have physical safety. And as long as that human being continue to exist in the world somewhere, it's probably some part of your brain was like, don't you ever, you know, it's not, you're not safe. You can't, you don't, you know, like um, this person still exists. This person can still harm you. And like you were saying, when someone's dead and gone, they're gone, 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 gone. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe, I don't know, maybe on some level that sort of registered and it's like, oh, well, now there's like a little bit more room to explore safety because I know this person is gone and can't hurt me and can't hurt anybody else. And it's like on some level of your brain, I'm, you know, brains are tricky little bastards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you probably, oh, yeah, your brain probably <laughs> knows on some level that there's like a little bit more room for safety and to explore that. Yeah, exactly. And I, I appreciate that I've been able to experience that. Um, I think also I have to acknowledge that my feeling about this event and what I'm going through around this event isn't just about this event and being abused as a child. It's about other things that happened to me between those two points. Yeah. Um, I had a, uh, a very interesting year some years back where I had two enormous healing events in my life. And the first one was about the fact that I could not go near the town that I came from. Mm. I couldn't go. I certainly couldn't go within the city limits and I really couldn't get anywhere near it because I, I was triggered simply that that was close to me in any way. I, in my, in my mind, uh, Clinton, Massachusetts was Blade Runner but uh, but without the cool cool subtitles yeah um <laughs> and and it wasn't but it was to me yeah and yeah. never mind couldn't go i mean i couldn't go near the house the house where it had happened or the school where it had happened or any of this stuff and i was going to meet pardon me was was going to uh see my aunt jill and she still lived in clinton and she was just out of the hospital And I hadn't seen her in years. And she was a very important and is a very important person to me. Um, When I was growing up, she was basically the only adult that gave me the time of day and treated me like a person. We talked about music. We talked about art. We talked about movies, all this stuff. And it was never a, I'm an adult, you're a kid thing. It was here. I value, I, I value your intelligence. Let's have these discussions. And so she was the only one that I felt, thought my existence was a good thing. And that's a horrible thing to say about yourself as a child, but that's the way I felt like Mm -hmm. I wasn't important to anybody else. And I struggled with being important to myself. So she's getting out of the hospital and I really want to see her, but she's in Clinton and Oh my God. And we went up, you know, Christy, my wife and I went up there. And as we got closer to Clinton, my my voice got louder because (laughs) It was six kids and everybody yelled at the top of their lungs. And if you didn't yell, nobody heard you. She's like, why are you yelling so loud in the car? What's that about? And uh, I went and I visited my aunt and 
the conversation was like no time had passed. Mm -hmm. It was magnificent. It was, I felt so good coming out of this conversation. We walked out of the house. As we're walking to the car, I turned to Christy and I said, I want to take a little tour around Clinton. I want to look at some of the highlights or lowlights from my life. And she was stunned because <laughs> she knew how I felt about this place. And we went to uh, the schools where I'd been bullied. There's a great picture uh, of me with my crossed arms looking very defiant and happy in front of Clinton Middle School, where I'd had the crap beaten out of me and had the emotional stuffing knocked out of me on a daily basis. And we visited every place, but we went over to Fuller Field. We went over to uh, St. John's Catholic School, which was a place where I was abused by my stepfather because he was the janitor there. And then we went to the house. We parked across the street from the house. I said, I want to get a closer look, which she was very surprised by. I walked across. I'm looking at this house. And this house, as I recall from my childhood, this house had been falling down around our ears all the time I was there. You know? I mean, things were breaking and smashing, and it was just, it was a mess. Um, this house looked like it was about to burst into dust in any second. It was so dilapidated. And I said, you know what? Let's take a picture. And I sat down on the front porch. And uh, she took this picture of me. And I realized sitting there, it was only a house. It was nothing. It was only a house. It was a house and the house could not hurt me. And the house was getting weaker every day. And I was getting stronger every day. And I still am. And that house is going to be dust one day. The house can't hurt me. And I don't, it's just the intensity of that fear. For that fear to be conquered. It changed my perspective on myself mm. and on the world and on healing and it went right into the show, yeah. <laughs> of course. And so that we this happens over the summer, and here comes Doctor Who. Um, I've been going to Doctor Who conventions since I, I used to go a lot when I was younger, uh, in my teens and early twenties, and then I stopped. And then when Doctor Who like rebooted here in America, uh, or shown in America, not re rebooted in Britain. Sorry, sorry, <clears throat> I'm a little choked up. Yeah. Um, I started connecting to people I used to know in fandom and all that. And after 30 years of being out of fandom, I just suddenly decided to go back in and see what it was like and start going to conventions again. And it was the, that the, the year that I sat in front of the house and took that picture. Oh. It was that fall. I went to my second Long Island who convention and they let me do a, they, they let me do a panel about uh, healing through cosplay, which was kind of awesome. Wow! And yeah, when that it's it's an awesome it's 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 a thing that I find that I'm not the only person who feels about it that way. Yeah, it makes you feel stronger. And here's the thing about cosplay: if you're shy, if you're inwardly turned, like I was at conventions in like my my teens and my twenties, and you're looking at the floor all the time, if you dress up in a costume, people will talk to you. Yeah, whether you like it or not. People will talk to you. They will say you're cool. They will say you're amazing. They will feed your non-existent ego. And you will feel better about yourself. 
Yeah. And then you'll find out all the other people in cosplay are also terribly insecure. So I'm there and I'm dressed as the third doctor with my white wig and my cape and everything. And I'm having an awesome time. And we did this panel and I met this guy at the panel named Bill Panther. Another great name, Bill Panther. It's a great name. It's a great name. And we're talking after the panel's over and he was just still excited about everything we had talked about and all that. And so that was a great afternoon. Come that evening, Long Island Who always has the Saturday night dance party. I don't go to the dance party. The reason I don't go to any dance party ever is because when I was six, I am told that I danced at every opportunity. And I didn't care who was there. I didn't care what was going on. I danced in front of everybody. And I had no self-consciousness at all. After the abuse, I was terrified of the idea of dancing. I was so self-conscious and so self-critical. And that lasted for decade after decade. We're talking about up to the year I'm talking about now, which has to be 2017. Okay. I still could not go anywhere and dance in front of people because it triggered me. It triggered me. It destroyed me. So that night I'm trying to find somebody and I keep asking people, where, he, where is he? Where is he? And everybody tells me that, oh, I saw him in the dance party. I'm like, he's not in the dance party because I'm not going to the dance party. You're lying to me. I'm not going in. And finally I gave up and said, fine. <laughs> and I walked into the dance party, immediately assaulted by the thrumming music and by the lights and by the people. And my anxiety shot through the top of my head and splashed across the ceiling And my entire body is trembling. I found my friend. I said what I needed to say to him. And I tried to run out. And I heard Bill Panther's voice from the dance floor. Hey, Michael, come over here. Come over here. I walk over there. I'm like, what? Seriously, what? Because I have to leave. He's like, well, why do you have to leave? I said, it's complicated. I have to leave. He's like, why don't you dance with us? Dance with us. It'll be cool if you dance. I'm like, okay. It's complicated. I'll explain it to you later. I can't dance. Nobody wants me to dance. Nobody wants to see me dance. And I'm leaving. And he just kept. And I finally said, you know, the problem is that it shoots my insecurities up to 11. It makes me so self-conscious. And I'm not confident enough to dance in front of other people. And he said wait a minute, this afternoon at your panel, we talked about the fact that in the outside world, we often get insecure and self-conscious about things because we're geeks and people make fun of us. But when we're among our own community, we can do all the things we're afraid of because we know that our community will support us. You said- Ooh, you got called out. I even said, he said, you said, like, for example, I'm afraid of dancing. It's like, I remember you said that. You also said you should be comfortable among your own people. And I was like, yeah, Yeah, (laughs) seriously get called out. (laughs) And so I started to dance. I got to be honest. It was the smallest amount of movement I could possibly make that could vaguely be considered dancing. Almost imperceptible. Baby steps. And because it was so scary. And as I looked around, I saw smiles, not mocking smiles, but smiles. People wanted me to come over and have a moment with them over here, a moment with there. Who that? I met that person yesterday. This is so cool. And pretty soon I forgot to be insecure and I forgot to be terrified and I forgot to be triggered. And it took this thing. My show talks about in the very beginning that I lost my ability to dance, that I lost that child. Mm. Well, this show needs a rewrite because 
And now that story is in the show because I get that person back. Mm. I get that person back. I mean, my God, I got me back. And so much in therapy is about, you know, there's this little kid who you're trying to heal. Let's get you in contact with the little kid. And that got me in contact with the little kid in a way that therapy had never done. Mm-hmm. I mean, going back to that, like it takes healing can happen in so many different contexts in so many different ways. And I also think there's some power in like movement. It's really interesting to me that one of the things that kind of got shut down was like this freedom of movement and expression with your body. And because your body was being violated so egregiously that that became, you know, off the table and a part of you that sort of died. And then to, to reconnect with that later in life and reintegrate like the, the six-year-old who wasn't afraid of their own body and to move is like, I mean, that's incredibly beautiful. And to do so what it took, what you didn't, that did not happen in isolation. It had to happen in the context of being around people who love and support you unconditionally with no judgment. Right. So it's like, it's like all of these different pieces sort of culminating together. You're, you're in your costume and you're with your community and you were reminded of your own strength, which came in the form of a call out. But really what that was is your friend being like, yeah. yo, dude, you believe in this stuff. I know you do and you can do it is essentially what that was. Um, and kind of the, the like the prodding, the come dance, come dance. It's like, we love you and we want you here. You know, it took that sort of like call, like, people sort of bringing you into the space in a safe way to for it to all kind of come together. And that's, I mean, that's a really, and sometimes those moments, those are those moments too, where you're like, I never want to forget this feeling, you know? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. this is a big one and I'm going to take this and it like kind of propels you up a little bit in your healing. And it's like a new platform to kind of stand on to get you even farther, you know? Um, Wow. That is really cool. And I don't think, I, I was going to say, I don't think it would have been possible if not for, but you know, it, it could come from all different kinds of ways that could have come, but it is a line between my aunt, the mm-hmm. house, the convention. There is a line there because if I had not conquered the house, the right. horror house, I might not have been strong enough to be as forthright and upfront when we were on that panel talking about our insecurities. Right. To make a statement like that, to then be able to actually do that when called up, but called out in a good way, you know, Bill's great like that. Um, It's all these pieces. And I think that what I've done for myself in healing is open myself up to things that I don't know, things that I don't control and things that I haven't created for myself in order to heal. You know, when a moment, like you're talking about this moment exists, when this moment exists, being open to this moment that exists. And this weirdly, I'm going to tie it back to the creativity. And I love this. Um, being in bands for many years, I was creatively frustrated in many ways because I am not the kind of person who goes, we're A kind of band or we're B kind of band, so we can't do C and D. And I would always end up in bands where people would be like, well, no, we can't do C and D because we're this band. And I'm like, well, no, but we should do what we want artistically, whatever, you know, if it's country you want to do today, I don't care. We were doing, you know, whatever choral music yesterday, let's do country today. But I never found anybody who was into that, who wanted to do that. And for myself, what I have learned is that I need to work with people who are open creatively 
who are open to what the universe presents for healing, for creativity, because you know what? If you're a creative person, to believe that everything inside of you is all that could possibly be good in any creative piece, that's really arrogant. So like, okay, what idea do you have? Or this is what I, this, this collaboration I'm doing now with Sticks is all about what do you want to do? What do I want to do? What's happening in between? And I try to stay open healing-wise and creative-wise and also open to learning things that I can apply to myself and I can give to other people. One of the things we talked about earlier was the idea of things that don't work anymore, you know, like dissociation. I have a fellow advocate named Elam Hermeri, and he talks about rusty tools. They're rusty. They don't work anymore. You've got to know enough to put away, put away the rusty tools. You need new tools now because your life is different now. And I think that to me is the most beautiful thing for me to become aware that my life is constantly evolving and changing. And I think that's one of the things that I ran up against a a block with some people that I work with was that people don't want to grow. Um, I had a, a best friend was my best friend who I parted company with in 2016. And that's because I suddenly realized that he didn't want to grow. And it was very frustrating because he was holding on to some ideas that were fairly toxic. Yeah. And I had to, I had to, for my own health, my own mental health and emotional health, I had to say goodbye to this person who I bonded with um, over some intense stuff. I mean, we met the day that we were both visiting a friend of each of ours. He, he, this, this friend was in the hospital because he'd attempted to, to commit suicide by stepping down onto the L tracks. Mm. And he had suddenly changed his mind and climbed out and lost a leg. Mm. And so, you know, this person I don't know yet and I were both going to visit this third person. And we bonded over how much we cared for. The guy's name was Michael, who tried to commit suicide. And that was the beginning of our relationship. And that really, it was a very great, it was a great relationship for a lot of years. But then when I discovered that his empathy had limitations. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of ugly limitations. It was hard to accept. And I have to, I have to be honest with myself and say, listen, this is a toxic thing and I can't do that. And I have to be honest and open myself up to other people who are, who are people who help me to grow and change and learn. That to me is fantastic. The biggest thing I've learned is you if you get too certain in absolutely everything, you'll never learn anything. Right. Critical thinking. Right. As my wife, Chrissy says, critical thinking. That's what keeps us alive. Critical thinking. And I think it's important that you were able to like point out, you know, the, that yes, relations, relationships and connection with other humans can be healing and helpful. They can also be toxic and detrimental as we know as trauma survivors, not all relationships are safe. And if at any point it becomes unsafe, it's absolutely within your right to say this isn't this isn't good for me anymore and that comes can come with grief and it can come with joy and it can come with relief and it can come with all sorts of things uh, that's also very complex but it's not not all relationships are safe but i do love you know, there's an, an idea that i um a concept that i've i came across recently in grad school where relationships in relationships there's a sense of within between 
and among. And this among piece can almost become like a third entity um, that is also present in the, you know, in the dyad, in the, in the, in the relationship between two people and this third entity, this, this co-created like among feeling that's where all, there's like this rich material to draw new insights about yourself from through the eyes of another person, through dialogue, through friendship and connection. And, um, and I think that's where like the healing element comes in is like, it, it's in the among. And sometimes you run into folks who like can't create the among with you and that's okay. And that doesn't mean that you have to exit relationship with them completely necessarily. Those relationships, relationships with individuals look totally different based on who the person is. But sometimes that means a goodbye is necessary. And that's also a really hard thing, I think, as trauma survivors and abuse survivors specifically to really learn how to do is to know when when those relationships are helpful and harmful and when, when it's time to say, you know, goodbye um, and that I have a right to do that, <laughs> you know, and that I, I'm, I don't have to be in a relationship with someone I don't want to be in. Um, and that's a, it's a, that's a hard thing to learn. The, I have a right thing is interesting. The among thing is fascinating too. The, the, I was in a lot of relationships and friendships when my healing was not, it just wasn't moving. Yeah. And I was at the, of the attitude that if somebody wants to hang around me, I should just feel grateful. And that was both in romance and friendships. I, I'm such a burden and my life is such a burden. And my existence is such a burden. And I don't contribute anything to this. I should just be happy that they want to be with me. So I should just be fine with that. And um, I've had to learn to respect myself and say, listen, some people are going to be people I like, but don't love and aren't close to me. But they're people I like in, in my sphere. They're around in right. the community. Some people are going to be people that I absolutely have to cut all ties with because it's nothing but toxicity. Um, it's interesting because it's hard sometimes to the among thing is really hitting me really strongly right now. It's hard it's a to, lot to take in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. To understand when among, when that among thing is happening and when it's not, and when it sometimes runs up against limitations because it will get no deeper than this. You've got among this guy, uh, this longtime friend who was the best man at my wedding and everything who had tied my bow tie because I was so nervous and my hands were shaking. Aww. And I wasn't nervous about getting married. Yeah. I was nervous about the fact that we had set up the wedding ourselves at our house. Right. And I, the caterer wasn't there yet. And the minister wasn't there. And I was like, oh my God, where is everybody? Um, so we had bonded over that. I had been the best man at his wedding. We had our own language, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of people, that happens between you if you have your own language. Mm -hmm. We could riff off each other continuously for like 20 minutes. People were like, what the hell are these people talking about? They're laughing a lot, but what are they talking about? And that was, that filled me with a lot of joy to have that kind of thing. Um, and it was finding out that there wasn't depth under that and not feeling like I'd failed um, at having a friendship because you know what? My best friend, my two best friends are my spouse and my tech uh, sticks. We, he and I have our own language, but that includes the depth of things. And he is so fascinated by what I do. And I'm so fascinated by what he does. And 
if you have to drive with somebody for hours and hours from state to state, it's great that you both can talk about everything. You can talk about Johnny Cash and you can talk about uh, emotional damage versus physical damage. And you can talk about Doctor Who. And then we can go and talk about politics for a while and we don't get at each other, which is great. And we can, and, and yet he has different things to offer. And I have different things to offer, you know, and we care about each other's world. Yeah. And then among thing that I'd never heard it expressed that way before that among thing is really there with us and it's there in so many levels. And among thing is really there with Christy on so many levels. We have shorthand. We have, I know it makes people sick, <laughs> but we must say, I love you 500 times a day. Aww. It's just part of our language. It's just who yeah. we are because it's true. If it wasn't true, I couldn't say it. Mm. Um, and that among thing is just, I mean, it's blowing my mind because that's, that's mutual language. That's mutual understanding. That's different things you can offer each other. That's supporting each other when new things come up that are unexpected. Um, I mean, sticks has gone through, I'm not going to tell his private business here, but he's gone through a hell of a lot of things over the pandemic and many other things in his life. And I am his sounding board because he needs that. And he is my sounding board because I need that. But his girlfriend's also a sounding board and my wife is also my sounding board. Right. And that's why it works is because we care about each other and there is this connection. And this, this oh, whenever time I see the among thing, I see this fear connecting to people. Yeah. Together. So it's I so see beautiful. a, I see a dome. I usually see yes. it's like a co-created dome over the two individuals or multiple individuals, but it's like a safe space that you can keep returning yeah. to time and time again. And, and, but it's, it's not so like the within is the individual, the between is the exchange between the two individuals, but the among is this co-created third thing that provides shelter and safety and, um, And I think that's kind of some of that healing power of relationship. It's like, and again, like when you talked about the dial, I'm like, oh, yes, yes, because I (laughs) am a very tangible visual thinker. Me too. And and so sometimes we use these like therapy speak buzzwords. It's like, what the hell does that even mean? But sometimes (laughs) when you can start visualizing a sense of it, it's, it can help really help, you know, people understand and integrate what, you know, and like create and and do something with in, um, on a different level than just intellectually. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you like that. That comes from the indigenous scholar, Eve Tuck. I do really want to cite that. So she's got amazing oh, nice. work. If it, lots of good stuff, stuff out there. If, if anyone wants to go research her, um, work, but, um, yeah, so, so yeah, so here we are, we're kind of, we're sitting at like an hour and a half in and like everything mm-hmm. that we have talked about has just been, really mind blowing. And, and I think will be really helpful for people to listen to, but, um, in, for the sake of just kind of like wrapping up, I do, I would love to just kind of get some like final thoughts from you. I usually try to end each episode with just giving an opportunity. If, if there's a survivor listening, like, what would you want them to hear? Like, what do you have to say to other survivors who are listening right now? Hmm. Um, well, first of all, healing is possible. Uh, healing doesn't necessarily have a beginning and an end. Uh, constant healing, in my case, has been a very powerful, positive thing in my life. Uh, so I feel that also there is this discussion sometimes within the community about the concept, the terms victim, thriver, a victim, survivor, thriver, in that order. I don't believe those are mutually exclusive things. 
Um, I believe you can own the fact that you're a victim, but also own the fact that you're a survivor. And Thriver is not looking at what the outside world thinks is your accomplishment, but what you think and what you know is your accomplishment. So I cannot name a single survivor that I have talked to in all these years, whether it's in person or over the net or whatever, who isn't all three of those things. Uh, so I want to say to everybody out there, I believe that we're all three of those things. However, you may disagree with that. Your mileage may vary. Um, the other thing is I like to say hero and superhero a lot. Now, in order to get up in the morning when you have horrible trauma that sometimes stops you from getting out of bed or stops you from eating or stops you from bathing or stops you from whatever, that doesn't mean you're a failure. You're a hero because you're here. You're a hero in your own story. You're a hero. And people always, I'll do it too. We all try to deny the label. Don't call me a hero. But I think every single person out there working to heal, every person out there who's been through this, who's still lifting up their head and saying, okay, what now is a hero? Yeah. yeah it's no small feat to choose to try and live and to try to and live to the try best and you live. can. Yeah. Choose to try and live. Um, cause it is a choice and it, sometimes it does feel easier to just not try and give up. Um, and, and there are going to be those days where, you know, all you can do is just lay in your bed, but that's a choice. You're continuing to choose to live and exist. And if that's what you can do that day, that's amazing. Yeah. I love hero and superhero. I love it. I, I love superheroes because it's just the, the idea that we have faced down, monsters, villains that could have crushed us and we didn't allow it. Well, that means you're, you're, you're one of the Avengers. You're a superhero That's because right. you do that every day. And the thing about just real quick, what you said about uh, the day that you just lie in bed, what my therapist keeps telling me is to be aware of what you need. Yeah. Some days you need to lie in bed. Some days you need to get up and some days you need to shower and some days you need to write something and some days you need to know yourself and respect yourself and respect your own choices and don't go, well, that person over there, he seems great. He's healing and he's fine. He has no problem. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, know yourself, respect yourself. Awesome. Yeah. Comparing is a dangerous game. Um, and it's hard not to do that when you so desperately want to be well. Um, and there are all of these perceptions to that everyone else is doing better than you. And that's also like one of those self-critical narratives as survivors and trauma survivors. That's like, oh, well, you know, I suck and everybody else is better. And so it can, it, but that, yeah, I mean, it's hard to shake those narratives, um, those inner narratives, but uh, any day that you're just like choosing to live is makes you a freaking superhero. I love that. And your trauma is worthy. Your trauma is worthy. Just because somebody else had something else doesn't mean your trauma isn't worthy. Yeah, my mom always used to say there's no such thing as pain, painer, painist. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> right? There, the word is pain. Pain is pain is pain. There, we do not, you know, we don't need to qualify it. Um, and so your pain is valid. Yeah. Yeah. That one stuck with me. I was like, whoa, mom, that's a good that's one. That's beautiful. Yeah. No such thing as pain, painter, painist. Um well, Michael, I just want to say thank you so, 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 so much for being on the podcast. And this first recording for me couldn't have gone any better. And I really appreciate all of your wisdom and your insight and your vulnerability. And this is, yeah, this is what it's all about. And um, 
and I, you could probably hear that. That's my dog. It's okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just want to say thank you again. And, um, any final words? Thank you too. I, I appreciate this immensely. Um, my final word is I'm going to get off of this. I'm going to go to Christy and spend some time in that, that, uh, that among in, in that the sphere. Among sphere. Yay. Let's do some among sphering today. I will. Well, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you too. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.